Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh, yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> wow. We're back again. Part six. So I think that this has now officially become our longest running <laughs> series of any of our episodes. Yeah. Our Val Luton was five parts. Yeah. Tough. And which is hard to believe now having done Rudolph Valentino, which has so much incident in it. Yeah. So much more than Val Luton's life. Yes, that's true. So essentially, we left off. Natasha and Rudy came back from Europe with buku things, having spent more money than they had and more money than the studio wanted wanted to pay for all of the finery. Uh, and they were offered, well, well, they, truly, Rudy, was offered to do either a version of Captain Blood or a period drama that took place during the Louis Fourteenth, Louis Fifteenth, Louis Sixteenth. one of those guys. France with powdered wigs. Yeah, and knee breeches and silks and so forth, and beauty marks and all kinds of stuff like that. So it's probably around the reign, like the end of the reign of Louis XIV, was my guess. So that's the one they chose because they wanted to make fine art and they really had very European sensibilities. As we said last time, Captain Blood would have been the better choice. <laughs> well, I mean, this could have been a great movie, though it wasn't. Right. So we're going to tell you right now, Monsieur, Monsieur, oh Jesus, Monsieur, Monsieur Boucler was not a huge hit. I, I think we should just say up front, it really has gotten bad, bad rap. Has been just lambasted as being just a horrible, horrible movie and terrible and a huge flop. And in fact, that's not quite true. We watched it. It still exists. It was kind of dull in places. There were some very clever things. Um, Rudy looked great. There was a, a shirtless, long extended shirtless shot with Rudy in it. Sword fights, punch-ups. Yeah, it should have been more exciting than it was, is basically my ultimate yeah, it was, feeling about it. Yeah, it was just kind of, you know, meh. It's the case, it's another one of those stories about, you know, a royalty who has to go undercover as, um... A barber. He goes undercover as a barber this time, yeah. Yeah, which, and that was very cute, actually. There, it's, there really were some high points to the film, where he was playing the dual roles, it was very cute, he was very funny, that comic, uh, the com comic sensibility came out. It just, overall, the movie, it didn't feel like it had a lot of energy to it, overall. I've had some other ideas about this. First of all, I found out that in the cities, this film did well. Oh, interesting. Yeah, a good box office, did very well. It was when it went out into the countryside, you know, to the middle America, did not do well. Did okay in Europe, <laughs> as you would imagine. Yeah. So it, you know, but it wasn't a blockbuster. It wasn't the chic. So it didn't meet expectations, and also the budget went so over budget, way, 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 way over budget. And so had they not gone over budget like that, with a lot of frivolous stuff, I mean, let's face it, that Rudy and Natasha bought, and they're, because they had control, they, you know, it took a really long time to do shots, and they did them over and over and over, and looking for this perfect piece of art, and had it been shot more like a regular movie, it would have done quite well. 
it would have been not maybe not a huge blockbuster hit, but it would have been a hit. They've shot themselves in the foot by overspending, essentially. Now, looking at it today, I think part of the problem that makes it less interesting than it could have been is that people were watching it the, on nitrate film being projected on a screen. And nitrate film is silver-based. So they played, they used that um, facility of the film. Apparently in the first half, from what I was reading what it was about, the way it was lit, it was like pools of silvery light around these people. Hmm. And you just, you don't get that watching it on the screen. I think that that's the problem. It just kind of looks like, well, yeah, there's a lot of shadow around them and it's kind of round, but you don't get that the, these are these glistening beings who are bathed in pools, round pools of silver, silvery light, and it would have looked silvery on the screen. Interesting. So it probably was a way more beautiful than it looks. Because it does look kind of washed out is one of the things about it mm-hmm. in, on DVD. Yeah, Yeah. it just, it, it just doesn't create the same effect. And then the second part, when he's he's in uh, he's in France during that part, and then he goes to uh, England to r- run away because he doesn't want to marry this wo- this woman. The king's going to make him marry, and he uh, pretends to be a barber, as you said. The light becomes more diffuse, more normal, more everyday, and so they they were using this play of light to create the atmosphere of the court versus sort of real life or real people, if you will. So anyway, I think that. I think that it was probably a much better film than it appears to be today, but also it wasn't didn't come off as well, which is really it's it's really funny because I mean they definitely had their heart in it, and what happened was because it wasn't as successful, and maybe on some level it it was not promoted properly or distributed quite properly because Famous Players was pretty mad. I mean they wanted him and they wanted yeah. to make money, but you know sometimes. People can shoot themselves in the foot. Also, ultimately, Natasha, just like Yoko Ono, bore the brunt of all the blame right. for everything that went wrong with the film. And she certainly contributed, but she had a real eye and she could create real beauty. I mean, somebody just needed to say this, you know, we're not paying for that, you know. Right. But she really had an eye and she really had ability. And Rudy was there. He was making decisions, right? you know, and the director was there, even though he, he wasn't a really strong person. He, there was a director and the producers were there. So, you know, let's not just all heap it on Natasha's back, right? Um, so essentially, apparently working on the film, like all the actors who were on the film, it was great. The atmosphere was great. Rudy and Natasha would like bring, make lunches for people and they'd bring lunches and they, they just had fun. It was really positive experience for everybody on the film. Rudy would like when they were doing scenes, when other people were doing the scenes, he'd sit, sit off on the side, play the guitar and sing <laughs> to create the mood for the people while they were acting in the scene and stuff Aww. like that. I know, so that's nice. They had these lavish costumes and apparently it was just impossible to act Unless you were wearing real jewels, not fake jewels. <laughs> sure. Yeah. That's also method acting. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And, of course, Natasha created the costumes. They're all very beautiful, especially Rudy's. Because, and so there was like this one suit, apparently. And, again, how I wish we had color. Yeah. It was a gray velvet suit with chenille braid on it, lined with purple and red taffeta, a pink waistcoat embroidered with silver thread, Breeches and boots made of gray suede. Wow. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Yeah. I want to wear that. Yeah. Yikes, man. Uh, so they went along uh, trying to get this film together, and the director was Sidney Alcott. 
And Cindy Olcott went way back to the early, early days, like of the 19-aughts, where he was one of the very early directors and, and so forth. And he worked with this female director, groundbreaking female director, Jean Gautier, who was an actor, producer, director, writer. She wrote like 42 movies. Uh, or no, she starred in 42 movies. She wrote like, hundreds of movies. I mean, these were movies were like 15 minutes long, the one reelers, back in like 1905 and so forth. And one of her very famous movies that you can see on YouTube, although they don't have English intertitles, they have Dutch intertitles, is called The Spy Girl Before Vicksburg. And she's basically, unfortunately, she's Confederate, but uh, she <laughs> she's given the uh, the task to blow up a munitions wagon. It's a very interesting movie, very interesting, because this is back before they had really imported a lot of theater stars and created a specific style. So it was just kind of like watching, a, in a way, a home movie where people were pretending, but there was no actoriness at all. You know, they just kind of stand there and look around and slouch and, you know, huh. mill around. And it was just very early days, It was, but it was really interesting. So anyway. Was Sydney, she American? Yes. Yes, she was. Okay. She just had a French sounding name. And it was directed by, I mean, she wrote it and she starred in it, but Sidney Alcott okay. directed that. So here he is, years, 20 years later, directing corralling young hot shots <laughs> yeah exactly and but apparently one of the actors in the film daisy kenyon is her name she called him she called him just absolutely useless that huh. Ocott was useless and really the burden did fall on natasha because rudy kind of like was in his actorly thing but the one thing that Alcott was really useful for is that one of the stars bb daniels her dress caught on fire, and he leaped on her, and he beat the flames out and <laughs> saved her. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so he was good for that. So the main thing was that just they had focused so much on the clothing and the scene work and the lighting, and the lighting was actually very innovative. The guy's name was Harry Fishbeck, and he was the one who uh, created the all the, the visuals of it with the lighting and so forth, and... You know, which we've kind of lost today. We can't really see it. The people on the set loved Rudy, and they, they kind of had mixed feelings about Natasha, I think because she did have a, a very withdrawn and, and cool personality in terms of connections, but she really did care a lot. And she actually brought Stanislavski to the set. Wow. He, well, he was visiting America. Oh, okay. And so, of course, through Nazimova, who had been his student, you know, she met him and got to know him and invited him to the set. And That's a big deal. It was a very big deal. I mean, some people thought it was. I mean, probably a lot of the actors didn't even know who he was. But he came and he watched them do the scenes, and he watched, like, B.B. Daniels do a scene over and over. and Oh, no, it was Lois Weber. Over and over and over, crying. Is it scene where she, where she kept crying? Do it again. Crying, crying. And he was appalled. He said, this is just brutality. This is torture. It's wrong to make an actor do this. Mm. It was very interesting. So he was not... Uh, he, was, he was not of the um, the Maria Falconetti, Passion of Joan of Arc <laughs> style uh, directorship. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Lois Weber, she's like, what? 
Yeah. I can cry on cue. Oh, that's yeah. funny. <laughs> right, but he, because he's so wrapped up in the the emotions authentic, if it's good acting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, she must be and, going through the ringer. And, or in the energy you have to put into it. And, uh, you know, it's just very interesting. So, so then for their last film for Famous Players, Lasky, they ended up uh, doing a film called The Sainted Devil. So now they're trying to go back, in the, and the studio's trying to force them back into that swashbuckling or romantic hero. The sainted devil, he wears a gaucho outfit. Look at the pictures. The hat. It's a lost film now, so we can't see it. It did not get very good reviews. They said basically what they were just doing is they were just taking a bunch of things from his other movies and smashing them together and trying to create a movie, and it just is not any good because it isn't original and it isn't fresh and so forth, that it didn't have any uh, any character depth or anything like that. And unfortunately, um, Natasha kind of gets the blame, because she kind of like directed the film. And she's not a director, but she kind of stepped into the gap, which is what, what she would do. One of the uh, critics said of, of Valentino, he is surrounded by women and wardrobe, so many close-ups. That's the problem with Natasha directing it. She's like, I want to see that face. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) interesting. But one of the good things that came out of that film is that Natasha, um, since she was doing so much, even though she was doing, uh, she was overseeing the designs, she had to hire in some young designers. And she hired a young guy nobody heard of named Adolf Adrian Greenberg, who later became, you might not know this name, the very, very famous and successful costume designer named Adrian. Hmm. Yes. I, I mean, I've seen dresses by Adrian in yep. most films yep. from the, what, the 40s and yeah. 50s? Yeah. yeah. That's Adrian. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So she gave him a break. She had a very good eye for talent. And Clearly, yeah. do things well. Yeah. But uh, essentially, um, so essentially that was kind of it for Rudy with famous players Lasky and that contract. And so now he's going to go over to Ritz-Carlton and he is so excited because these are going to be art pictures, man. This is going to be it, baby. The problem is here that first of all, the guy who was running it was really not quite kosher. He really wasn't honest and he lied all the time. So he would like give out all kinds of stories before he signed Rudy. He was saying, oh, a famous player is Lasky. They're just going to let him go. They're just going to rescind the contract. And, you know, wasn't true at all. Not even, there wasn't even a shred of truth in that. Mm-hmm. So he lied about a lot of things and he lied to Rudy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he lied about, just so ironic, is that Rudy wanted to get away from famous players because he hated Adolf Zucker, right? He didn't want anything to do with them. Well... Unbeknownst to Rudy, the distributing company that Ritz Carlton had a contract with, who were funding this film, the famous players Lasky, <laughs> yeah, oh great. <laughs> so he was really, really pretty upset about this. He didn't know this when he was going into the film. So they uh, went to create a film that they wanted to call the Hooded Falcon. Now there's some photographs from this. Again, some really fine headgear in this film. Nice. Really nice. <laughs> that is your favorite. <laughs> yeah. And in this one, he was going to play a Moor. Oh, oh a dark, Yes. Okay. And he was going to play dark kind of character. It was going to be very art, artistic and everything. And they asked June Mathis to come out to write the screenplay for them. And she did. And she kind of got some negative feedback from them. And she wouldn't speak to him anymore. She bounced. <laughs> and she bounced, man. Uh, so this was 1924. Now, just 
well, looking ahead, we'll just say that after Rudy actually and Natasha got divorced, even though she got along okay with Natasha, and in 19, like 1925, like right, right before he died, he and June were tight. good, tight, yeah, good friends again, and they were speaking, so it was okay, uh, which was good because she was important, really important to him. But that did cause a rift, and I can imagine that they would have been looking for something different than her style. So they scoop up Nita Naldi, who was going to be in this film. Uh, and by the way, if I didn't say this, this film never got made, giving away the punchline there. But anyway, uh, they're going to go, and this is going to be just like, this is gonna, oh, man, this is going to be the just the bomb, man. This is going to be amazing. So they, like I said, they take Nita Naldi, who's going to be in it, and the three of them hoof it off to Europe again to buy stuff. Natasha and Rudy and Nita Naldi. And Nita Naldi <laughs> to buy stuff, costumes, props for the movie, right? And they were told they had a budget. Of $40,000. When they went, they bought clothing, fabrics, furniture, everything just like they did for Musuba Claire, but even more, including for the house that they were going to have. They had they'd bought a house together and then they were going to build one. And this house was going to have all of these amazing antiques and fabrics and everything like that. The house that they uh, bought, they created black marble floors. Wow. Black velvet couches and flame-colored curtains. Wow. <laughs> and so they were going to build a house later called Falcon, that they ended up calling Falcon Lair, after the Hooded Falcon, which was the movie that never got made. And they were going to use a lot of these fabulous things they bought. So they had a budget, give it to them, which is, in 1924 money, $40,000. It's pretty to, huge. To buy, huge, to buy what they needed for the movie. Well... They spent $100,000. Oh, my God. That's more than the same again. I know. It was terrible. Uh, they, and they toured around, and they went and visited the chateau of the, her parents again and hung out there. And it's just really, really funny because um, they, they wanted to screen um, Monsieur Beauclerc for the family. So they had brought it with them, and they accepted the <laughs> The projector and you know this is early days of electricity and it caused a power outage and the whole wow. chateau just kind of blew blew all the fuses <laughs> they couldn't play it and then rudy he sees that they bought this like fancy pianola but it was an electric piano they plug it in you know it plays the roles and he was so fascinated by it one day he just started tinkering and he ended up taking it apart and then he couldn't put it back together again <laughs> But Muzzy forgave him and loved him anyway. <laughs> I thought it was really, really funny. So anyway, they, they came back to make this film. And while Rudy was there, he grew, I think, a pretty fetching mustache and goatee. He looked pretty, nice. pretty nicely continental. And he came back and America lost its shit. <laughs> I swear to God. Newspaper articles. People uh, just going pro and con I mean, people were just nuts and what was interesting it grew in kind of like a reddish brown oh, okay and he was very dark haired and dark very dark brown hair if not black hair so it's kind of you know kind of really interesting but he grew it out like that and the master barbers of america threatened to boycott all of valentino's pictures as long as he remains bewhiskered 
Because they feared that his growing <laughs> would this... cause a trend to spread that would cut into their business. Exactly. Exactly. That's so funny. Well, it's funny because it is a goatee and mustache. So there's plenty of shaving and shaping they could have done in totally. the neck and neck shaving. But, oh, they just went nuts. <laughs> and this is a lot like when Clark Gable in It Happened One Night. Right. He, there's a scene uh, where he takes off his shirt and he isn't wearing an undershirt. And apparently the underwear, men's underwear makers of America went nuts they went ballistic because their sales actually did fall by 40 percent in the next month that's yeah that's uh, enormous of the release of the movie <laughs> that's how much influence it has so maybe they weren't like totally wrong so they came back and basically the company had been on very shaky legs kind of anyway so what happened was is that they're kind of like can you make a different movie first you, you can make that movie but could you make a different movie first so what happened was is uh rich carlton bought the rights to a play called Cobra. And they thought, well, we'll throw him in this. It's a romantic picture. Need an Aldi. We got her. Have her in this. She'll play the vamp. And we'll just make some quick money. And that will help finance this other picture because we don't have enough money. Because the famous players was pulling the plug. They're going, this is, this is too much. We're not giving you any more money. I think Cobra is good. It's on our like top five list. So we really liked it. Um, and... Obviously, the best thing about it is the combination of R- Rudolph Valentino mm. and Mita Naldi. She's awesome. She's, once again, just like an unmitigated, black widow-y, unapologetic, big-bosomed seductress. <laughs> and uh, there's some cool shots where, like, the the motif of the cobra is that, like, the woman is the cobra. Um, and so there's this shot where she's transposed with this, like, cobra ornament that's in the house. So, so it he has like a daydream or something where she is kind of nude i think but she has like a cobra this kind of pretend pretend nude uh, yeah of course (laughs) but she has like a a cloak that kind of like looks like the hood of the cobra and stuff and so so they like shot her in miniature and did like a double exposure Mm -hmm. uh, and it looks really cool and i think i feel i feel like that's visually something that i've seen imitated a lot oh yeah yeah definitely yeah, it's 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 a, it's a it's an entertaining movie, and um, I don't know. Rudy's just he's just great. There's just like this one scene that we noticed, just like this little just this little thing, because he really did study his characters where he's writing something and something draws his attention, and he kind of just tosses this pen out yeah. of his hand, and it's just like, well, that is so that's unique. That's very a very specific character uh, choice. Yeah, he's very good with objects in the room, and also in this one, he plays he plays. A combination of the guy that's easily seduced and a little bit like laissez-faire and everything but then he's also kind of like the tragic hero because mm-hmm. he wants to do right and he denies himself like his true love for his friend but spoilers there is that like a happy ending so. yeah and he also gets they also do a historical um, kind of flashback to one of his ancestors that he plays who has all kinds of trouble with women, you know, hiding women in closets. And, oh, yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, there's a bit of a farcical yeah, it was, element. That yeah. was cute. Yeah, exactly. In the meantime, as I was saying, they're spending, spending, spending. So this house they bought with the marble, black marble floors they put in and so forth, well, that wasn't enough. So they added an, octo- uh, an octagonal aviary, a six-sided swimming pool, a fish pond, and they also had a really expensive apartment in New York because they had expected and were told they would be shooting these movies in New York, which they weren't. <laughs> Rudy just really hated making that movie. 
It's really? not, yeah, it's not what he wanted to do. He didn't want to be that romantic guy anymore. I mean, you know, something I haven't revealed yet, the big secret, was Rudy was losing his hair and wearing a toupee by this time. Good toupee. Can't really tell. I couldn't tell. And he, you know, it was sort of male pattern baldness, like thinning on top and on the sides a little bit. And I mean, you know, there's a video of him and Natasha from a little later, like from the next year on this, and he's kissing her. She's going off on the train. If you look at that, you can see his hair, and you can see how thin it is on top. Um, and so he, you know, he saw his attractiveness was going to be waning. So he was really aware that the clock was ticking. So he was getting ready to maybe become a director, producer, a producer. How could he do that? He didn't have the skills, but director maybe director, you know, he, he was kind of looking at what he was going to do next because mm. he was aware, right? So he hated doing it because it just felt like going backwards. Uh, and yeah, so it was not a big success. So basically, the studios were kind of like looking around to try to find like a Rudy substitute. We talked about Ramon Navarro and various guys like that. And the one who really struck even more than Navarro was John Gilbert. Now, John Gilbert and Rudy almost got into a fist fight one time. I think I mentioned this <laughs> over, over I don't know, who is the best or something like that. I forget <laughs> what it was. But um, John Gilbert pops up in uh, 1925, early 1925, in a couple of movies called The Merry Widow and The Big Parade. The Big Parade is a World War I movie about World War I. And he was a big hit. And he So Rudy was the Latin lover, and then... John Gilbert was like the lover, I guess. The great lover. The great lover. And they both hated those names. They both hated those names. And, uh, but he was kind of cutting in there and, you know, going to be a substitute for Rudy. Though there's no substitute for Rudy. Of course. Yeah, so we watched, um, I mean, we've seen a couple of John Gilbert movies. We watched Flesh and the Devil, which has a co-star with Greta Garbo. So that was like a real star power one. And we decided to watch it to do a sort of a comparison. And John Gilbert, he just doesn't have the singularity, the specificity, and the spice yeah. that Rudy has. Yeah, I he's agree. He's peppy, you know? He's yeah. got energy. Yeah, he would be attractive in real life, I think. Yeah, he was cute. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't think he was particularly handsome myself. But he's got, he's got you know, big, luminous eyes. And he's very pretty. I mean, he's got pretty hair. He's got that black hair. But he's got very pale skin. You so know? he's like, yeah, they, they replaced Rudy with kind of an ang- anglicized yeah. version. And the film itself, I feel like there's some iconic shots in it. Like, I remember the visuals, but it was pretty melodramatic. You know, the other thing about Gilbert, that he's got the same thing as Rudy, but his is more, even more, like, more puppyish, is the sincerity. Right. Gilbert is very sincere on screen, and so is Rudy, but it's layered over with a lot of other kinds of mystery. Characterization. Or, yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. So anyway, I like John Gilbert, and I we, we do recommend you to Flesh and the Devil was good. Also, he was also with Greta Garbo in a talkie called Queen Christina, which was very good. Very much recommend that one. Yeah, yeah. That, that's an iconic one. A lot of people talk about that. Anyway, John Gilbert was the up-and-comer when Rudy was kind of struggling to bring his his career back online in the same way it had been before, where people are going around the block. I mean, that's just not sustainable forever. Right. And I think he kind of knew that, but he's spending the money. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to be an artist, and he isn't. I mean, he is an artist, but he, and he wants to do the kind of art he wants to do. So there is that. But I think that the fact is he has to be in front of the camera because that's where he can make the money right now. And he's 
just he's getting for he gets further and further in debt but he keeps making more so he can kind of kind of keeps running ahead of it Like Valentino himself said, women are not in love with me, but the picture of me on the screen. I am merely the canvas upon which the women paint their dreams. A man's most coveted audience is a woman. Her approbation, the ultimate laurel wreath. <laughs> How do you not love a guy like that? <laughs> That's so funny. It's so funny. Uh, but he's right, you know. Now we have to touch on, before we get to uh, the final two movies and what's going on in their marriage, let's just end this bit by saying, and Ritz-Carlton died a sad death. Oh. Because it didn't make enough money. Oh, the company. <laughs> HP wasn't going to put any more money in. Done. So what happens then is that Rudy then signs up uh, with United Artists. He finally gets with United Artists. Now, United Artists originally was a company that was formed by Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, D.W. Griffith, and Charlie Chaplin. And they formed a company so that they could be the producers of their own creative work. In other words, the artists taking control. And now all of these people had good financial heads on their shoulders, right? And then uh, they, they produced their own pictures, they got to keep the profits, so on and so forth. Well, the, the, the company kind of had transmogrified even in a few years, but Rudy was able to sign up, and he was going to be able to kind of do his own pictures, but he would be overseen. So he wouldn't be the same as, like, Mary Pickford, where he would just be totally in charge, thank God. Uh, so that's going to be his next two pictures. But in the meantime, in that gap while they're making this Cobra and they're getting ready to, you know, figure out what's going on next, a controversial action occurred when, it, for Christmas, Natasha designed a platinum slave bracelet for Rudy. And he said that it was a symbol that he was a slave to her beauty and kindness. Wow. Wait, was, so was there anything specific about the links or anything? It was just kind of a linked bracelet. Yeah, you can see it online. And he actually wears it. I think he has it on at some scenes in The Sheik. Supposedly it said he never took it off. But I don't believe that because I've seen him in movies where he's not wearing it. But then other times you will see you will see it on his wrist. But the thing was, um, now what can I say? But here's a man who is being called a sissy essentially because he was wearing a watch bracelet, as they called it. Now he's wearing a bracelet, bracelet, a slave bracelet. Yeah, a I mean, self-professed slave bracelet. Yeah. So they men were having a field day with this. But the, and the thing is, is it's not like it was just him alone, because apparently in 1912, slave bracelets were the thing. Men, a lot of men wore them, and it was, did not necessarily uh, uh, signify as homosexual or anything like that. It was artists in order to set them apart. That was sort of like part of their mm. their garb that they wore, uh, particularly in France. Interesting, you know. And they called themselves like the Beau Brummels. Or the Knights of the Bracelet. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. But, of course, macho American men can say you're just whipped by your wife, so. Yeah. Well, of course, yeah. It's interesting. A lot of men in Spain wore bracelets. 
A lot of artists wore it, and even men in Hollywood who were considered he-men. This name you probably won't know. It's called Rod LaRocque. The name aside, he was a he-man on screen. And then the other person who wore his bracelet and would never be without it was Eric von Stroheim, the man you love to hate. Yeah, the one who always plays like a, a Nazi officer, right? Yeah, Teutonic, well, at least a Teuton. Before, this was before World War II. But, so he always played a German, kind of a Prussian yeah. officer and that kind of thing. He was a director and writer and so forth. He wore it, but no, nobody was talking about that. That seemed to just go by the wayside. It was Rudy wore this. So that was kind of a big, big deal that he did, that they did that. And, um, and also during this time, because of the failure of the films and that Natasha got blamed, when Rudy signed up for United Artists, uh, he was getting $10,000 a week, plus part of the gross of his films, which was fantastic. But they stipulated that Natasha could not be on the set. So essentially, he couldn't really work with her. I mean, if he really wanted to, he could have worked with her. He could have gone home and worked on the script. But she wanted to be them together, a team, producing sure. team. It's a blow to your ego to say you're not allowed on the set. Yeah. yeah. And probably even if they had said, well, she just can't work on the film, that wouldn't have been okay. Because Rudy's simply agreeing to that. Though what could he have done, I don't know. Because he had, you know, he was getting really in debt. Even more. Because they bought a house at this time called Falcon Lair that was up on a hill and it had stables where he kept his horses. I mean, you know, he needed, yeah. the, he needed the bucks. And she kind of was kind of unreasonable about that. But I think they probably were having some strain on their marriage anyway because of their different styles. And, ne- and both of them were very impulsive and passionate. And, you know, they weren't like people who would like sit down and hear what the other person has to say and, and be reasonable if it touched them in some way that made them feel insecure. As a sop, I guess, Natasha was given a movie of her own that she could direct, you know, kind of a low, lowish budget movie. And it, it did get made. It was called What Price Beauty? And it was apparently not very good at all. She produced it and directed it. And the only notable thing to come out of it was it was the first screen appearance of Myrna Loy who we love a lot. She, for those of you who don't recognize the name, she was uh, Nora Charles in the Thin Man series. You know, she had a very comedic actress. Very good and very pretty and just very sparkling. Love her a lot. And Natasha and Rudy could feel their marriage breaking apart. So they were hoping that buying Falcon Lair, new home, a new start, all this, but it just wasn't working at all. Rudy took out a $100,000 loan to buy the property, which was worth about 150000 or that cost 150000 And he did stand by her publicly. I mean, you know, he really did, because she got all the blame. And he said to some reporters, he says, stop right there. Don't you ever dare mention my wife again as you live, or I'll give you the worst licking you ever had in your life. You leave my wife's name out of our business arrangements, understand? <laughs> wow. Uh, obviously, that wasn't to a newspaper man. It was to a, a director or producer or something. But later that week, Variety had a headline that said, Mrs. Valentino, cause of breaking with Williams, wife's interference resented, ultimatum by producers. Wow. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that's a kind of... I would pro- stoke tensions yeah. for sure. Yeah. She, she just really... I mean, they both had a really hard time with it, but she really, really did. So, essentially, Rudy's the, signing this contract was pretty much the final straw and she was just so angry with him she had an affair 
She wouldn't move into Falcon Lair. She wasn't going to do any decorating. So Rudy decorated it the way he liked it, which is, looks like kind of like old, uh, like medieval Spanish kind of <laughs> look with shields on the wall oh, wow. and spears and stuff like that, you know. And uh, she wasn't going to do that. And, and he had been pressuring her to say, well, quit work. Just stay at home and have children. That's what I want you to do anyway. Now, whether he really wanted that or not, but he, he was putting a lot of pressure on her that that's what she should do. And she's like, basically, I told you I didn't want to have children. I don't want to do this. I want to work. I'm an artist. And he could not budge on this. And she could not budge on it. And so it was just, just really, that ultimately tore, tore them apart. She ignored his 30th birthday. That's bad. And, Good uh, for her for sticking to her guns, but... And then she started saying shit like, oh, this is so mean. She talked about how Spanish lovers are real men, while Italian gigolos only know how to make love with their eyes. Jeez. In life, their prowess extends no further than the edge of the bed. And apparently, she said this within his hearing. Wow. And he replies, if you have a complaint about me, Natasha... Don't include all Italians. They are not responsible for my unhappiness in loving you. Wow. Whoa, snap, snap. That's some good repartee. Oh, man. Heartbreaking stuff. Ouch. So really, things were getting kind of ugly between them. And uh, he would wander the desert at night looking at the stars. And he said, In every love union, there is one who loves more than the other. In my romances, it has been I, the great lover, loved by all but his loves. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. And apparently Valentino created this Valentino medal and he decided that he created this medal and he would award it to who he thought was the best actor, best performance of that year. I mean, he didn't just do it all alone. He ended up like uh, polling 75 critics across the country Hmm. and, you know, getting their input and then making, you know. And so the first and only medal in 1925, went to John Barrymore. Very interesting. And he he made up this medal and this award two years before the Oscars happened. Wow, that's prescient of you, Rudy. Yeah, it is. It very, very much is. Uh, actually, it was 1924. I'm sorry that he gave it out because the first Oscars were in 26. So anyway, so he did that. So he had a banquet and he had you know, food and invited everybody. And she just, she came late, didn't dress up. Kind of ruined it. Oh, she was really. I she was, she was vindictive. Mad. Yeah, yeah, she was really, really. Uh, I, I think she was just so deeply, deeply hurt that he didn't choose her. Yeah, that you know came out with a lot of anger, and obviously they weren't like real. Hadn't done a lot of work on themselves, as we say. So anyway, basically at this time, she finally uh, she announced to him and to the world that they were having a marital vacation. Rudy kept saying, oh, well, you know, we're going to get back together. No, no, we're not. We're not splitting up and all this. But he also said, Mrs. Valentino cannot have a career and be my wife at the same time. Just threw his foot down harder. The last letter she ever wrote to him, and she wrote to him while he was dying. Oh, wow. And she said, you were my first real love, and you will be my last one. With my arms around you, I give you my last kiss. Very sad. So they did reconcile in terms of still caring about each other and not you know being nasty and vindictive but this part was really really hard so she takes off she goes to the other side of the country and he's left on his own and he is 
devastated. He starts driving even more recklessly than he had been before. One of his friends came into the room one day and he was lying on the ground, weeping with a gun in his hand. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, whether he actually would have done it or not. And then he began drinking and drinking to excess and partying big time and started sleeping around to the extent that he does. He was not uh, not that good at being too profligate, mm. but he was seeing a bunch of women. Yeah, he was just kind of kind of just lost it. Poor guy. I know. I feel pretty sorry for him because, you know, he he really was suffering even though he was digging his heels and being kind of a jerk too, you know. And oh, I forgot to say when they found the gun in his hand, he had just written his will. Oh, yeah. It was on the table. So, the, you know, it was all there. And he even said, "I would like to disappear at the height of my powers in an accident. I find nothing more stupid than to die of a disease." So he, you know, he gave a lot of thought to having her leave also kind of put him into premature midlife crisis where he's beginning to look at his, seeing that his looks are going to be fading and he doesn't want to be old. Right. But at this time, one of the good things happened where he started working for United Artists and he finally gets to work with Clarence Brown, who he had wanted to work with. He finally gets a really good script. He's got good backing. There's somebody running the show who, who keeps a hand on the money so things don't go crazy. And it's the outcome of this is The Eagle. Which is one of the pinnacles of his films, for sure. I think, is it our number one that we chose? Yeah. Everything about it just works. It's mwah. Yeah. Great little film. It's a great film. He plays a, a Russian soldier. I, don't, I guess he's a Cossack. Works for Catherine the Great. Great scenes with Catherine the Great. So yeah. really funny stuff there. And he, he ends up uh, being uh, forced to either sleep with Catherine the Great or run away. So he runs away and he discovers all of this injustice and everything and that the um, this bad guy's taking away his family's land and... And he becomes the eagle. And he puts on a mask and he starts traveling the countryside with loyal band and sort of Robin Hooding it up. It's, and it is reminiscent. Some of the scenes actually remind me of Robin Hood. And I'm pretty sure that they that had an influence on Errol Flynn's Robin Hood. Just the, the scenes in the forest and, and Definitely. that kind of stuff. And then he ends up, in order to hide and also to get back at his enemy and also... Get near the woman to hang around with the beautiful Ooh. woman that he loves. He pretends to be a French tutor in their palace, and so he gets again to play the dual personality, the sort of a feat, a funny, witty. Yeah, this it's got kind of everything in it. All the all the tropes that make a good adventure film, and yeah, and it's pulled together and structured really really well so it can contain all of that. Yeah, and it clips along, and he's just great on screen. He totally lights it up. Oh, absolutely, and I don't get it. But apparently, it didn't do Rudy-level business. Mm. It was okay, but it was not, like, the huge hit. I just wonder if it could have possibly just been that this, the setup, the setting wasn't very popular or something, didn't draw a crowd, but I yeah. can't imagine people not going to it and not oh, they did. it. So. Yeah, and, and people did, and apparently this was when they hit the formula where both men and women liked it. So men were started going to see the film, too. Mm. And I thought that was interesting. But it did just didn't do the, the massive business that they were kind of hoping that it would do. Because, I mean, he's like the major star, right? Yeah. Um, but it, it did okay, and it's great. And I agree with you. I don't understand. Got good reviews. And so right around this time, too, he applied for U.S. citizenship. 
And, oh, I should also note that in 1925 that Gene Acker and Natasha Rambova both lost their American citizenship when they married Rudy by law. If you married somebody who's not an American, you lost your citizenship. Woman, oh, anyway. I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. And in 1925, they changed the law. I see. So they both got their citizenship back. Huh. So I just thought I'd mention that. But basically, uh, people in Italy went berserk, branded him a traitor. Whoa. And then he was afraid that he couldn't go get, home anymore. Go home anymore and all this. And so he wrote to Mussolini. And, and to ask Mussolini anyone to prove that he had tried to enlist in World War I in the Italian army. And he asked Mussolini to please stop the anti-Valentino demonstrations <laughs> that were going on. And then, uh, because, well, basically they didn't want his films to be banned in Italy. I mean, that was kind of really one of the reasons. And the other reason is that they, they wanted to ban his movies in Germany oh. because of Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and made the Germans look uh-huh. bad. I mean, God, it's just so nuts and when he went back over there in 1925 uh, his third and last trip to uh, europe he failed to get the visa to enter germany he was almost detained in germany and not let out so he managed through diplomatic channels to get out that's rudy for you but when he went back in 25 uh, after the eagle in preparation for son of the sheik he went and he bought he actually got real clothes for Sheiks, I guess. I don't know. Bedouin. I'm not sure what group of people that is, but he got their actual Arabic clothes and wore those, and he toured all over Europe, and he hung out with Pola Negri, who is a nut. That woman was just a, a, a mythomaniac and, a, and just a, a nut. Huh. But she was very beautiful, and she looked like his wives. That's true. <laughs> yeah, and she was just mad for him. She stalked him, and oh, and she told everybody they were engaged, and he, he was going, they're not engaged, you know? Wow. <laughs> All, and she just, boy, did she really milk it up. At least she was a distraction. And he went to Europe, and he drank and drank and drank and drank. And you, there's a picture of him coming back into the United States. He looked so bad. His face was just bloated, mm. and oh, he just looked awful. That's sad. Yeah, he really, really did a number on himself. But he did come back, and and he he cleaned himself up, and he looks good in his final film, nineteen twenty six, Son of the Sheik. He actually looks great. Yeah, and he really does. He so. he, he managed right. to rebound from that. I mean, terrible. he had good good habits and good discipline built throughout his life. He so. did. He absolutely did. Once he had a purpose to apply them to, maybe right. He looked really good. And this film was directed by George Fitzmaurice, who, again, Rudy loved him, had always wanted to work with him. In fact, he had been promised to have George Fitzmaurice direct, I believe it was Blood and Sand, and they they reneged on that. And so uh, now he got, again, another good director. He kind of didn't want to do The Sheik. Uh, He didn't want to be... Sorry, Son of the Sheik. Son of the Sheik, sorry. Because he didn't want to be tarred with that brush again after that controversy, but at the same time... He really needed the money, and it was a good script. And I mean, I think he could see that, and a really good director was willing to direct him. I think that got him to do it. Also, the fact that this was a father-son story, and he demanded that he play, he had to play both roles, and they let him. So uh, that sold him, I think. It's really fun. Um, you get to see him dressed up, give him like a, a grizzled lion sort of look with a beard and the... 
gray hair and everything to play his father and he works it so that the mannerisms are very different and they splice them together in several scenes Mm -hmm. that work pretty darn well the effects hold up i'd say yeah in this film they do for an actor playing a dual role with a split screen not bad at all and he really enjoyed doing all of the character work and everything but at the same time during this film and you would never know it by seeing him on screen he was having terrible Stomach pains and pains on the left side of his chest. So bad that he would double over. And again, remember we laid this in our early episodes. He did not trust doctors. He did not like medical science. He did not want to be sick because that was stupid. And he was a real man. And real men did not complain. They just dealt with pain. They didn't go to the doctor. So he he just totally ignored um, what was going on. Plus, he needed, obviously, the money so that he could pay his debts. But Pola Negri saw this happen a lot, and she said that she thought he was morbidly frightened of displaying any signs of illness as they made him somehow less manly. So even I think she's right, yeah. Yeah. And he had a real obsession with it, too, because the newspapers continued to ride him. And then this thing happened, uh, which is so sad, uh, so mean. Apparently, um, he was in Chicago promoting Son of the Sheik. So this is right before he died, just a few months before he dies. And the Chicago Tribune printed an editorial titled Pink Powder Puffs. It It was written anonymously, which is really mean. And it blamed Valentino for the feminization of the American male. And in it, they say things like, I will not read the whole thing, but the glass tubes contain a fluffy pink solid and beneath them one reads an amazing legend. Insert coin. Hold personal puff beneath the tube, then pull lever. A powder vending machine in a men's washroom? Homo Americanus! Why didn't someone quietly drown Rudolph Guillermo, sick, alias Valentino, years ago? And then it goes on about men in quotes and all kinds of stuff. It says, who or what is to blame is what puzzles us. Is this degeneration into effeminacy a cognate reaction with pacifism to the virilities and realities of the war? So now they're... They're attacking him for not fighting in the war. Well, not even that. They're just... I think that they're saying that the point of view is that war is a good thing. And so pink powder puffs are pacifism, are people who don't want to fight. Mm-hmm. And that is not manly. Fighting is manly. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's that kind of thing that really they're kind of getting into. And then, how does one reconcile masculine cosmetics, sheiks, floppy pants, and slave bracelets with a disregard for law and an aptitude for crime more in keeping with the frontier of half a century ago than the 20th century metropolis? So now it's criminality. Wow. Isn't that weird? Yeah, it really is. It's. I mean, it's. it just reads like a, a one of those hyper-conservative screeds, really. It totally does. Uh, and then they go like, do women at heart belong to the Wilsonian era of I don't raise my boy to be a soldier? What has become of the old caveman line? <laughs> Which, I mean, look at the chic man. But anyway, so they conclude with, it is a strange social phenomenon and one that is running its course not only here in America, but in Europe as well. Chicago may have its pink powder puffs. London has its dancing men and Paris its gigolos. Hollywood is a national school of masculinity. Rudy, the beautiful gardener's boy, is the prototype of the American male. Hell's bells. Oh, sugar.
Jeez. You can see why this man is just why this just triggered him. I mean, yeah. and he's sensitive anyway. I'm because it's so mean. Yeah. And it's and it's and it's so false. So anyway, this guy wrote anonymously, and he probably wasn't much of a physical specimen from what I've heard that he was kind of ill and older and all this. So anyway, but Rudy issued a challenge to this writer uh, to come and let me read the challenge because it's pretty witty as well. So anyway, it's, it's a couple paragraphs long. I won't read the whole thing though. I call you in return a, a contemptible coward and to prove which of us is the better man, I challenge you to a personal test. This is not a challenge to a duel in the generally accepted sense. That would be illegal. But in Illinois, boxing is legal. I therefore defy you to meet me in the boxing arena to prove, in typical American fashion, which of us is more of a man. Now, Rudy, again, like we said, he's had this physical fitness culture, and he's done a lot of boxing, and he would spar with Jack Dempsey, who is the heavyweight champion of the world. Yeah, very famous. Yeah. So, and Dempsey thought Rudy was pretty good. I will meet you immediately or give you a reasonable time in which to prepare, for I assume that your muscles must be flabby and weak, judging from your cowardly mentality, and that you will have to replace the vitriol in your veins for red blood. If there be a place in such a body as yours for red blood and manly muscle, hoping I will have an opportunity to demonstrate to you that the wrist under a slave bracelet may snap a real fist into your stagging jaw and that I may teach you respect of a man, even though he happens to prefer to keep his face clean. I remain with utter contempt, Rudolph Valentino. Nice. <laughs> so this guy never surfaced or even answered. So what happened instead, I mean, Rudy couldn't let it go. I mean, he was constantly talking about this, constantly on it. So essentially what he did was he and sports writer Buck O'Neill got in the ring together. Oh, so another okay. newspaper man, yeah. And Jack Dempsey was the referee. Wow. And apparently Rudy hauled off and whacked this guy and knocked him down first punch. And they got a picture of it. And the photo caption read, Ready for all comers? Here's brawn, girls and boys. Rudolph the Sheik demonstrating at a loop gym that a man can wear a slave bracelet and be a Goliath. Nice. <laughs> yeah, okay, so the Ken Russell documentary that we watched twists the story a little bit to make it that the writer of the article is the one he ch challenges and that they have quite a contentious boxing match in which they're both bloodied at the end. But this is the real version. Right, exactly. And despite his ability to still do all of this, he was in terrible pain. And he would just self-medicate by just taking bicarbonate of soda all the time, which is, do you know what that is? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, because it seems like an old thing to me. But yeah, bicarbonate of soda. And he really just abused his body in this way. Ultimately, one day, he was walking across the lobby in his Chicago hotel, and he just collapsed. And it was so sad, he, and he went into profound shock. And they took him in and they operated on him. They thought it was his appendix. And after about five hours of operating, um, they took out his appendix, so it wasn't appendicitis. It was a perforated ulcer. So basically he had a hole in his stomach. And usually, I don't know what they actually did. I mean, they operated on, on his ulcers. I don't know what they did. Usually, if they operated on you in those days for an ulcer, they actually resected your stomach. So they cut that part out and sewed it together. And Ugh. I know, it's pretty bad. So that's probably what they did. Um, now, nowadays, we know that it's bacterially uh, caused, and you can get antibiotics 
if you're having an ulcer. But once you have a perforated ulcer, that allows bacteria and stuff to get into your organs, to seep out of your stomach, and however that works. And he was got a really bad infection. So he was in the hospital. You know, if he'd gotten treatment before, it might not have ruptured. First of all, the first thing they would have said is you have to stop eating spicy food. You have to stop drinking alcohol. You have to stop eating so much. Kind of have to go on a bland diet. Now they thought that was because then it would absorb the acid that the, that it was that you were too stressed and you had too much acid and it was making a hole in your stomach and this would soak up the acid. But still, a bland diet would have helped him because it wouldn't have irritated his stomach so much. Mm. And they made you drink milk, which was doesn't really help, but <laughs> gross. What is so sad though is he came around as they were wheeling him into surgery. He woke up and he says. Did I behave like a pink powder puff or like a man? Oh, I know. Rudy. He's so sad. You don't have to behave like a man. You can just be yourself. Not that kind of a man. You are a man. So however you behave is a man. (laughs) Yeah. That is sad. That's all he could think about. Yeah. So he came, he came out of it. He came out of surgery and was doing really badly. And they were publishing. Newspapers would publish several editions a day. And so there would be like almost hourly reports on how his health and, you know, it's huge, huge story because the son of the sheik had come out and it had been, he was back to form. It was lines around the block. It was mega, mega hit. And so he was back and then he He died immediately. Yeah, now he's in the hospital. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. In fact, it's so sad because he rallied and he thought he was going to be okay. And he's thinking about all the things he was going to do next. And his friends came and saw him. Gene Acker came and visited him and stayed with him uh, for quite a while. Natasha was notified and she telegraphed him. I don't think she wrote, although letters went faster in those days. Anyway, they communicated in writing. And that was that final letter that she sent him. It was just like, he almost thought they were going to get back together. You know, that it might be possible. So sad. And then just suddenly... He was doing so well, and he just went under, and he died of peritonitis. And at the very end, one of the last things he that he expressed was he was hallucinating and talking to the doctor. He hallucinated that he that they were going to go fishing. Aww. Oh, I know. It's so sad. Oh, my God. And so once he died, I mean, his very last words were in Italian, so nobody spoke Italian, so they didn't know what they were. <laughs> sad. But uh, anyway, uh, the news just hit like a firestorm. Not just in the United States either. It was really interesting. There were two documented cases of suicide caused by his death. One woman, she actually, uh, she uh, killed herself and she actually left a note saying, now that you are dead, uh, there's just no beauty in the world anymore. Wow. And another woman died, uh, but she was clutching photographs of Rudolph Valentino when she died. Oh my so. God. I know, I know. And then they took him to the funeral home. And before they did the funeral, they were just holding the body in the casket and embalmed it and everything. And there was a riot. This was in New York because his body had been shipped back, I guess. Basically, the cops said there were probably about 50,000 people showed up. And this gigantic crowd, and they were one of those deals where they were rioting and they crashed through the plate glass window of the funeral home and went inside and they were like ripping flowers and ripping stuff up. And it was just terrible. And so they had to get the cops in and get special guards to come and expel everybody. And ultimately, they set him up in this little room where people kind of couldn't really get into it. And then they let people walk by 
like for days, just people would just walk by and look at him. And I know, and not everybody was reverential like a either. State funeral, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, Paula Negri, you know, telling everybody how they, how were, they engaged. were engaged. Oh. And so she went to Falcon Lair apparently, and she just wandered from room to room, calling for Rudy. <laughs> so dramatic. I know. And in, and in New, and then and then she went to New York City, you know, to see him and she fainted when she got there. And then she went into her hotel room and she fainted and she tried to get them to put a blanket of white roses spelling Pola on the God. <laughs> and that was Nick. A little narcissist. In this last year, um, Rudy had brought his family over. He brought Alberto and his nephew over and his brother was going to sort of like be his business manager and he was going to have a great job. Unfortunately, that now fell through. No, he was in Italy. He did have to come over the ocean. And so, you know, he came over and it, uh, basically what they did was they shipped Rudy's body cross country to California. And it was just, just really weird because nobody bought a burial plot or a headstone or anything like that. His business manager was worried because Rudy was in so much debt that he didn't want to take money out of the estate to pay for a funeral. I think he feared he was going to get in trouble. Although, at least nowadays, all statutes say you can do that. You know, just basic stuff. Like, you know, a plot, a casket, you know, nothing fancy. Even if the estate is bankrupt or in debt, you can go ahead and do that. That's acceptable expenses. But he was worried, so he didn't do it. So it gets there. So June Mathis had bought two vaults. One for herself and one for her husband. Well, her husband, her husband had died, so she said that Rudy could be in her vault until they, you know, kind of got it sorted out. And what's so interesting is that nobody did. He never got moved. Well, he did get moved, but nobody, oh. nobody bought a crypt or anything like that for him, and so he, he stayed there. In fact, he'd gone to that crypt one time because her mother was there, and he'd been placed flowers on her mother's. On June Mathis's mother's yeah, grave. Know, That's I sweet. Know, I know, it's so sweet. And he once, he once said, In life or in death, forever our souls are in tender, austere alliance. He said that to Paula Negri you know, at the funeral. She kissed the coffin, and then she collapsed. Yeah. <laughs> John Gilbert was an usher at the funeral. Nice. Nice. And uh, Charlie Chaplin was a pallbearer, among other very you know famous people at the time. And so, essentially... The estate was supposed to be split three ways between Alberto, Maria, his brother and sister, and uh, Natasha's Aunt Teresa, hmm. who had been just the best and kindest, warmest friend to them in their marriage and to each of them individually. He really loved her. Wow. But the problem is he owed $100,000 in back taxes. He owed $15,000 to Pola for a personal loan she'd given him. $49,450 to Allman which who is his business manager and lawyer for um uh for the money that he used to finance uh, Natasha's film What Price Beauty? Oh. <laughs> $21,300 uh in a salary advance from uh, UA uh, from United Artists they gave him. So now he's dead. The estate has to pay it back. Plus he owed tons of bills and lawyer fees cuz he was constantly in the uh in the in the courts suing people being sued. And then, of course, there there were funeral expenses, and there were the mortgages on the two houses that he owned. Plus, he owned a lot of money to haberdashers, <laughs> clothes, hats, shoes. Of course, yeah, that was a big a big ticket item. And uh, so, what Ullman tried to do was he tried to sell Rudy's stuff and have a big auction and everything. And so, there was a ninety five page catalog 
of stuff that they tried. It was a very, very disappointing auction, apparently, but it had 12 pages just for his antique armor and arms. Wow. <laughs> Five cameras and two movie cameras, four horses, a Great Dane Irish setter, and a list of clothing. Let me, I just got to give you this. This is just too good. He had 30 business suits, seven riding coats, seven Palm Beach suits, 60 pairs of gloves, seven dressing robes, 10 complete dress suits, four lounging suits, six colored Japanese pajamas. I'll bet, I wonder how many of those are purple. 111 assorted ties, six high silk dress hats, nine gray and eight white felt hats, 26 white dress uh, uh, full dress ties, 146 pairs of socks, 28 pairs of assorted spats, <laughs> 22 white vests, 13 assorted canes, 17 white silk drawers underwear, 59 pairs of assorted shoes, 110 silk handkerchiefs embroidered with his initials, 10 overcoats, one black velvet riding habit, one gray corduroy riding suit, 10 pairs of suspenders, six pairs of garters with tassels. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that was just for. <laughs> and that was just a partial list. Plus he had his jewel cases had 15 rings with rubies, sapphires, cat eyes, diamonds, several platinum scarf pins, cufflinks, shirt studs set with, you know, precious gems, a wristwatch on a platinum gold chain link bracelet, an onyx pocket watch inlaid with diamonds in the shape of a cobra a custom-made white gold cigarette case, uh, and a matching cigarette holder. And it goes on. I mean... That makes and me several feel better sa- about my own wardrobe. <laughs> I know, and several slam bracelets, exactly. And the sad thing is, is that what they scooped up from this auction was not very... Yeah, I mean, these people got deals. I wish I could have gone. The deals they got. And then they also wanted to try to sell the non-Falcon Lair house. And they only were offered $10,000 for it. That house that he spent 150000 on. That's you know. nuts. And Falcon Lair. How's that even possible? <laughs> I know. I know. Exactly. It's just crazy. So, but it only brought in like a total of $96,654. And then he got sued. And, and then the Depression, you know, ultimately the, the state was still trying to work itself out in 1929 when the Depression hit. So property really wasn't worth much. So it was really hard because then, you know, none of his heirs really got much of anything at all. And, you know, Alberto, really kind of sad. He'd been brought over from Italy hoping that he was going to have this life. And so he decided he was going to see if he could start acting. So he got seven nose jobs to try to look like his brother. Oh, my God, that's (laughs) so many. Yeah, but didn't work, and he ended up being a studio accountant. So at least he got a job. Yeah. I mean, not the great one. What's cool is his nephew, Jean, he became a sound engineer in Hollywood, and he ended up earning it, uh, winning an Emmy Award in 1971. So nine months after Valentino died, June died of a heart attack. So she was still pretty young. She was only 39. What happened was her husband was a native Italian, so he was shipped back to Italy, and June was put into his crypt. So she and Rudy are side-by-side side for eternity. They wound up together. That's, that's where they really belong. That's really sweet. It's, it's kind of funny that her husband just got booted. But. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the family wanted him back there. Sure. You know? <laughs> I know. But. Natasha ended up, you know, she ended up acting on the stage for a while, and then she opened an elite dress shop. 
and she ended up remarrying and uh, she uh, went to Mallorca with her husband and remodeled villas. Okay. Yeah. And, and then ultimately at the very end, she became a scholar in mythology and Egyptology and she was a writer and editor and all about ancient religion and myth. Yeah, and she died of a heart attack, and she was 69, 1966. So, not too bad. And then Pola. (laughs) Oh, Pola, Pola, Pola. She married into the Devanis family, the marrying Devanis. They were this family of four brothers and a sister who their deal was to marry as rich a person as they could, use up all their money, dump them, and then move on to the next one. Horrible. And it worked. Apparently, one of them married Barbara Hutton, who was one of the richest women in the world. And this guy, one of the other brothers, marries Pola, who was pretty rich, but, you know, not like Barbara Hutton. And they divorced two years later after he used up all her money. Wow, in two years. Yeah, in two years. Christ. Well, she lost her money in the crash. I guess that's what really did her in. But apparently, he was spending, 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 and she just, like, couldn't, like, rein him in or didn't want to or whatever. And then when sound came in... She had a very heavy accent, just didn't work. So she lost her acting career. But she got together with Margaret West, who was her partner till the end of her life. And Margaret West supported her and loved her for the rest of her life. But until the day she died in 1987 at age 90, she would choke every time the name Valentino came up. Of course. (laughs) And Gene Acker... Uh, Because she had been visiting Rudy in person and had been his wife, after he died, they sent her his toupee. (laughs) (laughs) Why? (laughs) Did she request that? Why would they send that? (laughs) I know. Isn't that funny? I guess it was maybe, I don't know. I I just can't even guess. Not a case or something. Okay. So, uh, 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 and of course, his death really spawned a lot of artwork and, and music, all kinds of stuff. And there's a, a very famous song called There's a New Star in Heaven Tonight that was sung by Rudy Valley, And it's very, very popular, big hit. So Gene writes a song. It's called We Will Meet at the End of the Trail, which is really, really funny. It was not a big hit, though. It probably wasn't that good. So she ended up having a little bit of acting career, not much of anything. And she did have walk-on parts in It's a Wonderful Life. And in Spellbound, Hitchcock, Hitchcock Spellbound, huh. I didn't realize that next time I watch these, I'm going to have to like really look for just a walk on, not even a line. Hmm. And she died in 1978 at the age of 85, still being Jean. But the capper here is there is a tradition, I guess, of the, the lady in black who on the date of Valentino's death brings and puts a, a rose at his crypt on his gravestone or whatever you call it, in his crypt. And it's... It still goes on today, every year. Now it's more official, like somebody gets to take the place. But originally they didn't know who was doing it. But Mm. there was some woman who was doing it. And then people said, well, it must be trying to get publicity for Rudy's movies or something. Uh, Could have been Paula. Who knows? And then the only other little tidbit here is that he left behind his beloved dog, Kabar, or Kaibar, K-A-B-A-R. It was a dog that had been given to him. And of all his pets, this was his kind of sole pet. And he died, and the dog just couldn't handle it. Really Aww. sad. He ended up dying. And so uh, Kabar was buried in the Hollywood Pet Cemetery. Mm. And he's got a headstone there. He got a headstone. He got a plot of his own. But not Rudy. And I guess uh, we should just finish up. Just going down the list. We've talked about all the films. Just giving you the actual list, which are in the show notes, 
of our top five Rudy movies. So coming in at number one, we've got The Eagle, which is the best all around. In every aspect of it. And in number two, we kind of cheated a little bit and we combined The Sheik and Son of the Sheik together because they're iconic as a pair and you can't separate them out. Clearly, The Son of the Sheik is the better movie, but they're a pair and you've got to watch both of them. Well, and The Sheik has, it really has its good parts. It does. For sure. It's just that Son of the Sheik, not only is Rudy in there twice, but Vilma Banky is the the woman and she's beautiful and ethereal she's way better than Agnes Ayers yeah although Agnes Ayers is in that too but she plays herself older and number three we have Cobra so that wonderful Nita Naldi and Rudy collaboration and then we've got at number four Blood and Sand his Matador movie in which he again co-stars opposite Nita Naldi and then number five we have Moran and the Lady Letty which is the more obscure I guess of these films and it's his seafaring film. So if you watch all five slash six of these, you'll really get to see him in a, a, quite a variety of like classic Hollywood roles and iconic roles for him. In the fullness of his beauty. Yes. So he died in 1926. And I, I just thought it was very, very interesting that in that same year, three months later, Harry Houdini died of peritonitis. They took him in, operated on him because he had a ruptured appendix. And he died of peritonitis too. Two icons in the same way. I know, just incredible. So we'll think of Rudy and look up and see another star in heaven tonight for Rudolph Valentino, <laughs> our best boy in silent pictures. That's right, our silent boyfriend. And good night. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Great.